welcome to Freshly Forever, a podcast that gives you fascinating insights week after week. Here's your host, Vai Kumar. Hello there. Today's topic on Freshly Forever is modern day student life, parental influence, and achieving a balance. Our guest today is Dr. Janine Jano. She has over 25 years of experience working with children, teenagers, and young adults in both public and private school settings, spanning preschool through college. Dr. Jano has a master's degree in school psychology from the Ohio State University and a doctorate in child and developmental psychology from the University of Connecticut. She has also been a college instructor teaching psychology courses and freshman seminars. Dr. Jeno started The Balanced Student in 2014 in response to the struggling students that she encountered both in her college classrooms and in her own home. As a mother of three, she experienced firsthand the challenges that children face today. And she's also the author of The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart, a wonderful book that provides a roadmap to navigate the dawning journey through today's high-stakes, high-stress education experience. Welcome, Dr. Janine, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, likewise. It's such a pleasure to have you join us today. I know you have been so instrumental in so many students uh, getting such good insights in into how they can balance their student life and other things that they do today in such a fast-paced world. And uh, we would just like to have a conversation here with you that uh, covers what a modern-day student encounters and how parents influence what they do and how we could strike a balance between everything. So what do you think are the factors that influence the life of a tween or a teen in their school life these days? Well, it's just such a great question. And this is just such a great conversation to have because um, it's just it's time. It's time we recognize the struggle of our students trying to achieve that balance. And, you know, really today, I think the big thing that we need to pay attention to is the achievement culture that we've been raising our kids in for the last couple of decades. Um, With a lot of high rigor, high expectations, check the box um, kind of mentality among our kids. Um, You know, we've also got the issues of screen use. So, those are some big players, I think, in the game right now. Totally. Yeah, it's just been a go, go, go culture. Oh, what next? What next? And uh, it's, just been, it's just been so much on the students. And so if you were to say a qualities that a balanced student demonstrates, what would those be? So, I mean, this is the good news. Not every student is a disintegrating student. Not every student is falling apart. So, you know, I do look at those successful students, the ones who are basically showing a lot of resilience. They are rising to um, and seeking out challenges. They're putting in effort. They have motivation. And they're very adaptable and learning skills along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And they demonstrate something called a growth mindset, which I think we'll talk about. A bit 
more about in a bit, but um, so that's the, and that's really the good news that we do have these students out here who show it can be done, but by and large, they're in the minority of students today. Okay. And uh, how could we be sure that they are on the correct path? So basically it's, it's usually pretty evident when, um, a student starts to veer off course and become what I call a disintegrating student, which, you know, just for definitional purposes, it's just a, a term I coined of these students. I was really surprised to see in my coaching, uh, my academic coaching business was I was starting to see just tons and tons of really bright, often gifted, high achieving kids who were just really falling apart. Their grades were dropping they would stop turning things in, um, you know, and what I found with these kids is before they started to fall apart, they had been really high achieving kids who didn't put in a lot of effort. So they were the kids who basically loved school, showed up, did their work in class or on the bus, got a pretty mm-hmm. easily, didn't have to study. Um, but what happened was they hit a rigor tipping point. And it's, okay. yeah, so this is a point where, there's just so much academic rigor kind of all of a sudden on a, on a student who really never had skills to address studying, um, you know, good study habits, good study skills, putting in effort. Um, it had always come so easily. So when they, when they were put in the position of needing those skills, they didn't have them. And that's mm-hmm. where everything starts to go downhill because it starts to affect their self-esteem because these are kids who their identity is really wrapped up in being smart kids and smart kids don't put in effort. Smart kids um, don't ask for help. So it became this sort of cycle that they got themselves in where they thought they weren't smart anymore. And so once that starts impacting their self-esteem, the motivation goes down and then you usually have issues with, um, you know, parents getting involved because they're seeing grades starting to drop. And um, it's just a very, very rough time for students and, and parents when that starts to happen. So when they expect everything to go right, just like it was in the past, all of a sudden they encounter a downtrend and they are not ex- even able to explain to themselves and they are puzzled as to why that happens. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's usually, it comes from, I'd mentioned growth mindset a a moment ago about, you know, our kids who don't end up in this position. The opposite of a growth mindset is a fixed mindset. And that's typically where these students are. And a mindset is just a default way of thinking about something. So if we we have Mm -hmm. a default way of thinking about intelligence, and if you have a fixed way of thinking about intelligence, it means you think you're as smart as you are. Um, and our, our students who start to fall apart here tend to think they're only as smart as, you know, they are. And if they start to show signs of struggle, that means they're, they're no longer smart. They've hit the end. Okay. Given that um, a school system or the rigor is manageable, then as I understand, the balanced student if we were to just point out what qualities you can just uh, hope to see in them that would just make you think, okay, everything is on the right track, is something like them being able to manage what's presented in front of them. And uh, so now 
I realize with everything having changed in these modern times, there's so much expectation out of them. And is that what causes them to kind of fall apart and or tend to fall apart and start going that route of being a disintegrating student? Yeah, so it's it's their um, fear. This is really comes from a place of fear because they don't know if in their minds trying harder, putting in effort, asking for help, if these are things they equate with not being smart and so they're doing mm-hmm. it, they then they start to hide, they self-sabotage, they self-handicap academically, they'll stop stop studying for things so they have an excuse for not doing well, or they'll stop handing things in. And you know, so this is very self-protective. And it's really because they don't understand what what is just this piece that's missing, this mindset that's driving um, their belief system about how they are a student. Okay. So as long as they can embrace a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, then they can perhaps be on the path towards being a balanced student. And that's where you try to emphasize on that and plus several other aspects that you try to help them with. Correct. And, and the good the good way to approach a student with this, because, you know, at first they don't usually know there's a difference between these mindsets or why it's so important, but I can almost always find a growth mindset that a student has towards something. So maybe it's the sport that they're involved in. So let's say a student is a lacrosse player and they've been playing lacrosse since they were five. So I talk to mm-hmm. them about, you know, how do you, you know, are you a better lacrosse player now than you were when you were five, six, seven? And they say, of course. Do you, um, have you benefited from practice and from coaching and putting in effort and making mistakes and rising to the challenge each and every game? And they're like, well, yes, of course. And then I say, so how do you, how do you, how do you apply that to school? Is that who you are as a student? And they're like, oh, I see. Okay. Then they are able to relate to uh, what they do in their sport versus what they do in school. And that kind of helps you uh, tell them how they could make a connection. Right. And why it makes such a difference. You know, in some kids, it's their extracurricular, you know, it's their debate team or, um, you know, whatever it is that they're passionate about, that they've adopted a growth mindset. It's just um, that really is an aha moment for students to see, oh, I'm not doing that with school. And that is a problem. Absolutely. So you you are able to just drive them using the positive in the form of whatever they are doing well. You just try to emphasize on that and and drive home the point. You know what the greatest gift of that is? That mm-hmm. It's the message of control for them because what happens when they start to disintegrate is they feel like they have no control. They don't know what to do. And that drives down that motivation and drives down their, their self-confidence. So when I share this with them, they're like, oh my goodness, I actually could get control back here. So that's just a huge gift. Absolutely. I think it, it helps for anyone to be able to relate to something, even us adults. And no wonder kids do better when they are able to correlate and uh, put two and two together. So that's, uh, I think that's a great insight. And how do you, now that we have identified 
when they start to exhibit deficits, if you will, how can we better relate to them? You touch upon brain development in your book. Can you just uh, tell our listeners about the brain development, sta- the stages of brain development and and just touch upon that, please? Absolutely, because this is a thing that is not... Um, I've always kind of known it and I walked around for a long time thinking this is just common knowledge about, you know, the parents just understood this. And then I realized, no, it really isn't. You sort of have to have a psychology <laughs> and have paid attention to that. So this is one of the things that when parents um, hear about it, it's like, oh, that's pretty helpful to kind of uh, gain perspective. So what I talk about a lot in the book is uh, three different things really when it comes to uh, looking at brain development and how it impacts how we parent and understand our kids. The first is mm-hmm. brain plasticity. So the brain is very, we call it plastic, which just means it's very malleable. It's not in a fixed state. And so experience, our attitudes and beliefs, all those things are changing um, our brain every single day. Even, even me in my late 50s, I'm still tweaking my brain a little bit, not as much as when I was young, but there are two times in brain development where the brain is just super um, malleable. And that is Mm -hmm. birth to three. And if you think about that, that makes sense because our brain, we're born with all the neurons we're ever going to have, 100 billion neurons. What changes is the connections between them, which is just astronomical, the number of connections that the brain makes, but that's all through the interaction and experience. So experience is what makes the brain grow. So that's interesting. Yeah, so think of a, a, a newborn infant to a three-year-old and the massive amount of learning and developmental change that happens there. So that's a very spongy brain time, I like to call it. And then the second time, well, what happens after that is there's a neural pruning, which means it's just like if you prune a tree, you you get out the dead stuff and the stuff that's not used and not needed to grow the tree bigger. Um, The brain does the same thing with neural connections. So that spongy brain is making more connections than it needs. And what it does around the time a, a child learns to walk and talk is it says, okay, now here's all those extra ones we don't need. Let's clean it up. It's almost like defragging a computer and making it run cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, so that neural pruning happens, then we continue to develop, and then it happens again in adolescence. And this is the part we've only discovered in probably the last 15 years is that the adolescent brain is this second super spongy time where it's very malleable and it's just primed to learn, good and bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, we would never have thought everyone would expect an adolescent to be very uh, mature. And that's probably why we as parents, when we uh, encounter this power struggle, so to speak, with the tweens or the teens in our life, we are like, hey, can you not, you know, understand? And uh, so it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, please. um, Yeah, please just uh, tell us more about it. So this adolescent spongy time. So this this pairs up perfectly with, you know, late middle school into high school where learning is, you know, it's their job. Um, But it's an equal opportunity sponge in that if, you know, it, it will overlearn bad things as well. So if, if an adolescent gets into drugs and alcohol, for example, the brain learns addiction 
you know, very strongly during that time because the brain is just such a super sponge. And, um, you know, then you have a longer battle usually with addiction if that has started when the brain is in this state. So there is no differentiation, so to speak, between good and bad. It's just a time of absorbing what's out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so that, you know, that's kind of the, and then at the end of that is, is another pruning where, um, so this is why, you know, they always say, if you want to learn a, a second language, do it before this second pruning happens after adolescence. So because, you know, my brain, your brain, it's still malleable to a mm-hmm. certain extent, but just not, um, we're not quite as flexible as we would have been um, in adolescence, you know, with, with that brain. So that's the kind of brain they're walking into, you know, middle school and high school with, which is amazing. And then the other kind of interesting thing is, you know, I talk a lot in the book about the thinking brain and the emotional brain. So there's two different brain systems that by and large control those two things. And that emotional brain is in the center above the brain stem. It's the oldest part of the brain. It's, it's no different than the caveman's brain, you know, this emotional center. Mm-hmm. When we're born, it's fully mature. It's on board 100%. A baby can tell you if they're in pain, if they're tired, if they're hungry. The emotional brain of a newborn is ready to go. The thinking brain, on the other hand, is the part of the brain that's right uh, kind of above our eyes, behind our forehead. It's the uh, prefrontal cortex. And Mm -hmm. that is the very, that's the newest part of our brain. And it is the very last part to be connected with the rest of the brain and to be fully mature and myelinated, which just means that the connections are super speedy, like the rest of our brain. So it's 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 like a bad cell phone connection for a long time. It doesn't mm-hmm. mature until, you know, late, late twenties. And even for males, sometimes into the early thirties. So when you have a, a really mature emotional brain and an immature thinking brain, this is where we get, you know, those hot reactions from our kids. Um, this is where when they do things where it's like, oh my goodness, what were you thinking? You know better. They weren't mm-hmm. thinking their emotional brain took over temporarily and just, and it happens with test, test anxiety too, that our kids um, might sit down and if they're really stressed out about a test, that hot emotional brain kind of shuts down their thinking brain and they can't concentrate, they can't read the question, um, and then they underperform. That's, uh, that's truly an eye-opening uh, um thing that you mentioned it's it's just that so the emotional brain always has more control so to speak mm-hmm. up to up till you know again we're since we're talking about students really their whole student experience is driven largely by emotion okay and so when do they finally get to a point of where the brain can mature and you can truly expect them to be mature adults? When when do they get into this adulthood, so to speak? So you're going to see um, variability there. But by and large, it's after college, after they would graduate college. So mid to late 20s, you should see a big difference. Um, any students who have ADHD 
or any weaknesses with executive functioning are going to lag a little bit more behind. Um, so they may take a little bit longer. Uh, males tend to lag behind females um, by a, a few years, typically. Um, so there's lots of variability there, but we really, we're not expecting to see any high schooler, even though they may, they may have good um, self-regulation and emotional regulation. That doesn't necess necessarily mean their brain is doing something remarkable. They're, that, that's more of a personal um, quality that's probably showing through there. in a moment with our guest on Fresh Leaf Forever. You touch upon mindset, the fixed end growth. Uh, how does sleep or uh, any motivational factors, the social and academic peer pressure that kids face these days, how can they juggle with all of this and with this emotional and thinking brain and uh, putting it all together? That's mm, a great question. I devoted a, a chapter to this because I was trying to look at all the variables that impact our kids mm -hmm. um, to varying degrees. So not every student is sleep deprived. However, the majority of our, especially our high school students are definitely in that sleep deprived range. Um, the 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 recommendation for sleep for adolescents is eight to 10 hours a night. And I have for years been finding what the national um, stats would back up. They're getting about four to six. Oh, yeah. I think uh, every household, probably everyone is going on like a deficit mode, uh, more than being on uh, on the good train, so to speak, in terms of uh, how much sleep and rest that one needs to physically have. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And this is, I mean, it, and sleep is huge. I mean, I almost look at it as foundational to all the other things from a wellness perspective. So, you know, how well we eat, how well we, um, you know, move our bodies, all those things are going to tie back to if you're well rested, it impacts our immune system. So we find students, you know, get particularly around stressful times around midterm exams or final exams or big projects or ends of semesters, um, they'll get sick afterwards because their immune system is being compromised and is relatively shut down under those high stress periods and lack of sleep is contributing to that. Um, you don't think very clearly when you're tired. Um, it's very hard to regulate your emotions. When you're tired, so we see a lot more volati volatility, irritability, um, outright anger from our teens when they're sleepy. Um, it's hard to be motivated to do the things you intend to do. So procrastination becomes a bigger problem. Um, not exercising or moving our bodies as much as we should. Maybe going for the fast fast food option versus more healthy food. Again, mm -hmm. because it's just easier when we're tired and we go for that quick fix. And our kids are more susceptible to illness and injury, car accidents, um, mental health issues, and even skin conditions. Um, so there's a lot of skin uh, rashes, acne, those kinds of things are going to be related to how much um, sleep our, kid, our kids are getting. Yeah, so the message is everyone in this generation, you know, all of us, be it adults, be it youth, 
uh, be it children, we all need to respect the circadian rhythm and uh, uh, just incorporate that habit of getting enough sleep in our lives and uh, which which unfortunately uh, in a device control world doesn't seem to be the norm exactly exactly um and some of the other things you mentioned um like motivation so our kids are going to be any uh, as human beings we're motivated two different ways intrinsically or extrinsically which means we're either motivated from within so there's something rewarding in the act of whatever it is we're doing. So with students, we're talking about learning, doing their homework, getting good grades, um, or extrinsically, which means there's some sort of external reward that we are striving for. So when we go to work, you and me, you know, there are times when we probably feel intrinsically motivated. There's something um, inside of us that is enjoying, appreciating, getting something out of our work. And there's other times where it's like, this is just drudgery, but I do get my paycheck or um, I will get the praise from my boss or whatever it is. So we, we, va- we vacillate between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. But unfortunately with our students, I'm not seeing a ton of intrinsic motivation, particularly from our students who are struggling. Um, um, so parents often, you know, will, you know, find carrots, you know, it's oh, $20 for the A or a new car if you get this GPA or things like that to try to motivate our kids. Um, the problem is um, a lot of times it doesn't work the way we want it to. Mm-hmm. So the go- yeah, we think, we perhaps think all that marketing and uh, negotiation as far as the rewards would would perhaps yield results, but uh, you're just trying to remind everyone that um, that's that's perhaps not the best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, we we just have to use it um, kind of cautiously. And the ultimate goal is to bring them into as much intrinsic motivation as possible around learning. Because then you have those people, you know, they grow up as people who have that um, that lifelong learner kind of attitude, like I'm curious, I'm interested, I'm willing to challenge myself in areas. And those are going to be the, 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 the students who graduate from college, who go out into the workforce and are going to be very, a very valuable commodity mm-hmm. um, because they're not just looking for a check the box kind of experience to get the reward, the paycheck, the whatever it is. So it's more, uh, I really want to do it as opposed to, oh, you should do it, or why do I have to do it? Exactly, exactly. So everything driven from within makes more sense, and it is uh, they can be more successful doing it that way versus being forced to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, that gets back to that issue of control I mentioned before, a student who is more intrinsically motivated is going to feel more in control of their success. Okay, that's great. And how does um, absorbing any material as far as when they study, when we do stuff, say even read a book, how does being well-rested and the sleep factor uh, correlate to all of that? Is there any relation to that? Oh, that's an excellent question. Actually, there is because um, learning is memory and memory 
is consolidated during sleep, which means at night when we go to sleep, there's lots of stuff that happens in our brain. But one of the things that happens is our brain is busy at work taking all the new information from the day and consolidating it. Where does it go? Um, Where does it fit into our existing knowledge structure? Um, It strengthens those memories. So good sleep. I always tell students, sleeping is studying. So if you've been working as a student during the day and you've studied something and you've learned something new and you've listened to a lecture, when you go to sleep, that is your brain doing the hard work of putting it in a place in your brain where you can then retrieve it later on. Mm -hmm. So it's hugely important. So cramming for tests is just such a bad idea. It might get students through the test okay, but they will not retain that information. So it's likely it's like they hold on to it long enough to do okay on a test. But if you look down at the end of the semester when they have to take a final exam and pull that knowledge out again, it's gone, which is why so many of our students are stressed at the end of semesters because they're relearning all the stuff that they just barely got in to their memories long enough to be tested or quizzed. Yeah, so that perhaps explains uh, the lack of sleep and trying to cram everything at the last minute. Uh, That perhaps explains why sometimes, say, someone goes into an exam hall and in an exam setting, some of us tend to forget things. Oh, we think we were so well prepared, but then it just so happens that everything disappears. And right at that moment, oh, why can't I remember these things, correct? Correct. And there's also another piece of that is it goes to study habits and study skills. So many of our students, because they haven't been taught how to effectively study, they're very passive in their studying. So they'll look over their notes. Um, they'll do, rev- you know, these sort of two-dimensional, I call them kind of passive reviews of information. They feel so familiar with it. It's called the um, illusion of fluency. So you feel like, oh, I totally get this. And then you go take a test you haven't self-tested in a way that you know what you know and know what you don't know. So you go take a test and it's like, oh, shoot, I can't actually apply that stuff that was very familiar to me. I didn't understand it to the level where I can then apply it to questions um, that I'm being asked. So it boils down to their study habits, like you mentioned, and how they take notes and what is their methodology that they adopt. And that's where you are able to help them uh, get into that mindset where, okay, this is how I need to do things and this is how I organized, uh, this is how organized I need to be uh, to be able to uh, succeed. Absolutely. And it's just a matter of skill development. I mean, so it's just like they're coming to me to learn how to play lacrosse, which would be a really bad idea. But (laughs) but I tell them I'm coaching you just like you've been coached in your sport. You know, you, you, nobody told you these skills and nobody had you practice these skills. And it is such a game changer. Oh, totally. Um, It's just, it all boils down to how how organized one is, be it work, be it school, be it home. Um, Everything is a matter of how um, well you plan and execute things. And I can totally relate to that. So how does, um, we talked about these individual influences, uh, all these factors. How does uh, the cultural influence, if you will, or 
the change from how uh, millennials and post-millennials are versus anyone from generations prior to that, like, say, uh, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers. Um, how, how does all of that uh, play into the current day scenario? Uh, say the modern day student life um, has seen so many changes from what it used to be back then in our times versus what it is right now. Um, so I devoted an entire chapter in the book to this and it honestly it's one of my favorites because I come from I'm at the very end of the baby boomers and I actually share that generation with my parents um so you know I look at my own childhood and I think a lot of parents you know you know in their late 40s and 50s look at their own childhood and, and see something very different in how we're raising kids today and I was just very curious about um what was happening, what it, what had happened. Cause this isn't, you know, this wasn't, this didn't happen in, in a few years. This has happened over a couple, two, three decades that mm-hmm. we've been creating this achievement culture. And it's really fascinating to me that it was a confluence of variables that started um, back with the, uh, I mentioned in the book, the Adam Walsh um, uh, uh, abduction um, years ago that sort of, it was, it was sort of the domino that started a lot of things in motion nationally to, um, protect our kids. So Mm -hmm. after that, that we had code Adams and, um, what are they now? Amber alerts, um, kids on missing kids on milk cartons, um, you know, all kinds of federal agencies were brought on board to protect our kids. And all of a sudden the, the national mentality was we need to protect our kids and it really wasn't backed up by any true statistics, but because that became the understanding now to be a good parent meant we protect our kids in a different way. So it wasn't that free range. Like I grew up with just come home from school, get a snack and be free till dinner time or till it got dark. Um, we, we switched to, you know, this also coincided with the time when a lot of um, households went to two parents working. So mm-hmm. women went back into the workforce. So there were more latchkey kids, quote unquote, latchkey kids home alone. And so that, you know, that situation was you come home, you unlock your door, you go inside, you lock your door and you call your parent and you stay there until the parent gets home. So um, just to say that, hey, I'm home safe and... Uh... And that, right there, that's a cultural shift from what we used to do. We were also used to coming home to mom being there at home and then, you know, toss the book bag, get some snacks and go play outside. Absolutely. And that causes, you know, guilt in parents too, because we see that we're not raising our kids in the way that we were raised. And so the play date sort of came out of that. So, okay, well, we will organize time. <laughs> get together with same age peers and have fun under our watchful eye. And the key there is under our watchful eye. And so when and that we, includes right across the street, correct? Absolutely. So when we insinuated ourselves into play and socialization of our younger kids, that was the birth of the helicopter parent. And so all these things kind of taken together. Oh, and the other thing that happened too was out of this, we, we 
we started thinking of kids a little bit differently. We were starting to worry about their self-esteem. Like how do we make kids feel good about themselves? Because kids who feel good about themselves are going to be successful. That was the thinking. Very well-intentioned. Turned out to be wholly wrong. Because mm-hmm. um, it was the everyone gets a trophy mentality. So we're going to praise you all the time. And we were keeping a ton of praise on kids, giving them trophies for participation. And that backfired just remarkably um, because it turns out it does the opposite. When you, when you heap on praise that's not valid, not really earned, they, our kids know that it ends up hurting their self-esteem. So that was problematic too. So we, you know, and, and, and the final kind of nail in the coffin academically was no child left behind when we should. So the educational policy changed. Mm -hmm. That was huge in that it shifted education from being um, student focused and uh, to data focused. So it was the, the rising of the standardized test um, which then led to teaching to the test, which led to um, so many standards that teachers, you know, teachers no longer had as much leeway to teach to their personal student body and teach in a way that they could connect with students. It was, you know, their, their pay, their evaluations were all, all of a sudden tied to how well are your students doing on this one test? And we've been there for a long time. We're slowly moving away from that now, but it's a slow move. It's like turning a cruise ship. It doesn't happen quickly, but we are, we are in the turn. And I think that's, that's something to think about. But that, those things together led us to this achievement culture we have today, where, by the way, I just, this is a sad statistic um, or sad piece of um, research has come out this past year, um, students from high achieving schools are at risk for mental health issues at the same rate as kids who live in poverty, as kids in foster care, as kids with incarcerated parents, and kids who have recently immigrated here. Um, oh, that's, that's not a good sign. Is that because of all the academic pressure? Yes. Yes. So that's that whole, you know, we, our success is now defined by data instead of values. I should say, um, of course, we are speaking here in the context of United States, but I think even elsewhere uh, in the world, uh, it probably has been a similar trend. And um, when I was in high school and transitioning to college in uh, India, I could tell the folks that went to high school, middle school, high school after we all did, say, the next set of students, I, I can tell it has changed so much. It has become more and more intense, and everything is so test-oriented. There's so much academic pressure. And so I think it has become like an overall trend uh, across the globe, if you will. And, uh, of course, I can't speak to how it is in Europe, but I think the modern-day student definitely has seen a change in trend. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're a world economy right now, so it makes sense that, you know, the way the United States has gone, the rest of the world has 
followed. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, uh, everyone, everyone tries to uh, see what's out there. And uh, there's so much of study abroad everywhere that uh, people have to now uh, incorporate what's done overall in the rest of the world and not just focus on what their academic uh, system offers. So I think everywhere kids are like on a go, go, go mentality and they are just forced to do one thing after another. Uh, wow, this has been uh, great insights and uh, there's so much more to cover, but uh, I guess we need like a part two uh, with uh, Dr. Janine Janot and um, I think uh, this has been fascinating. Would you be kind enough to uh, do a part two with us on how parental influence, power struggle, and uh, uh, most importantly, how uh, COVID plays into the present day scenario student life? Uh, would you just be willing to come back and do it with us? Oh, absolutely, because I think that's key. <laughs> we all need help there. Oh, yes. COVID has dominated everyone's life uh, since the beginning of spring of uh, 2020. I think everyone was looking forward to a great 2020 and the dawn of a new decade. And uh, it was just so much excitement. And little did we all realize most of us would be uh, shut indoors, having to do what we needed to do and uh, embrace like a new norm, so to speak, uh, in terms of how we changed our lifestyle. It has been a year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really hope it changes for the better, though. And something else that I would like to uh, tell the listeners to look forward to in your part two would be uh, the 77 tips that you give in your book that helps a student or any anyone for that matter to be productive. And uh, I definitely pick some favorites from that and I'm trying to incorporate that into my routine. So such a fascinating conversation, uh, Janine, and I certainly look forward to the part two with you. And thanks so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. I can't wait. Just to give everyone a recap, that was Dr. Janine Jeno in conversation with us. Her book is The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart. And that is very much available on Amazon.com. And the website for Dr. Janine Jano is www.janinejano.com. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. And uh, once again, that is www.janinejano.com. JanineGenot.com and it's spelled J-E-A-N-N-I-N-E-J-A-N-N-O-T dot com. That's it for now. Look forward to bringing you fresh lease of information once again next week. Be sure to subscribe, follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app and keep that feedback coming. See you then.